Is it possible, do you think, for us to think too highly of God? Of course, the answer to that has to be no. Whatever our problems are, thinking too highly of God probably is not at the root of it. But how can we see God rightly in his loftiness? I want to suggest to you today that the only way we can see the true loftiness of God is in the incredible distance that he traversed to take the lowest of places and become God with us. On this second Sunday of Advent, I want to read to you from the prophet Isaiah chapter 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. God, Emmanuel, God with us. Be with us now, we pray, as we consider your word. Be with us forever. Amen. In the latter half of the 8th century BC, a man by the name of Ahaz occupied the throne in Jerusalem, the throne of Judah, David. A century earlier, the folly of King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, had led to civil war and the cessation of the lion's share of the tribes of Israel in renouncing their loyalty to David's monarchy. And the kingdom from which God said the Messiah would come was reduced to a tiny and insignificant realm made up only of the tribal territories of Judah and its tiny neighbor, Benjamin. And as Judah grew weaker and weaker, and the nations around it grew stronger, its very existence came to be threatened by an alliance between Pekah, the king of Samaria, which was the capital of those northern tribes that had seceded, and Rezin, the king of Syria. And all of Jerusalem was afraid. God sent Isaiah to tell King Ahaz of Judah, do not be afraid, if we were to go on and read the rest of the prophecy of what he says, do not be afraid, within 65 years the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria will not even exist. Because to the north, Assyria was gaining strength. In 732 B.C., Tiglath-Pileser would march into Damascus in Syria. He would lay waste to the city. He would carry the people 
off into captivity. And 10 years later, Sargon II, now occupying the throne, would do the same in Israel. And so God says you don't need to worry, but let's put that in modern context. Imagine if God were to send a prophet in modern days to Kiev and say, hey, don't worry about it. In 65 years, Russia will be no threat to you anymore. You think that would bring them much comfort? Uh, A thousand years may be as a day to the Lord, but 65 years to us is a long time. And yet God's message to Ahaz is resolute. Set up in verse 9, if you won't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. 65 years though, it's a long time. So God does something unexpected and surprising. Through his prophet, he says, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. And Ahaz responds with the blasphemy of thinking too highly of God. And he says, no, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Doesn't that sound holy? Doesn't that sound lofty? Doesn't that sound faithful? We always seem to be forgetting that we're made in the image of God. And we think, rather, that God is made in our image. In Psalm 50, God charges his people with sin and and yet doesn't bring judgment upon them right away. You know, when that happens, as it happened to the people of Israel, we, we foolishly deceive ourselves into thinking that our sin is not really sin because judgment doesn't come right away. But because we think, well, if I was God, this is what I would do. And of course, since I'm making God in my image, then... then then I should expect God to do that. And and then we become comfortable with our sin. It becomes traditional, historic. Lots of churches do it. Lots of Christian people do it. And in verse 21 of Psalm 50, God puts his finger on the problem. He says, you thought I was just like you. You thought I was like you. But as he would say through Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. To be sure, making God in our image may lead us to think too lowly of him. I think that's what happened to Job even though he was more righteous than any of his contemporaries. And he confessed that God was great in the things that had come upon him, the calamities that he suffered. He confessed that God was great, that he was small and had no right to complain against the Almighty. And then the rest of the book is his complaint against the Almighty. And finally, in verse 38, God speaks. 
And he says this, he says, who is this that darkens counsel and speaks empty words without knowledge? He says to Job, Job, brace yourself up and I will ask and you answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know. And for two whole chapters, it goes on with God relentlessly barraging Job with questions, revealing to him his glory, until in chapter 40, finally Job cries uncle, and he concedes. He says, I'm unworthy, I can't reply, I put my hand to my mouth. But God's not finished with him. The relentless questioning continues for two more chapters. Why? Because God is cruel? No. Because he doesn't want to best Job in an argument. Because somebody can come to the place where they can say, I, I don't know what to say anymore, I'm just going to be quiet. But their heart is not changed. And so the questioning goes on and on and on until finally in chapter 42, it has the effect that God was meaning to produce in him. Job says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the year, but now my eye sees you, and I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And Job went from a man convinced perhaps in his mind to being smitten in his heart with the vision of who God is. We can blaspheme against God by trying to think, or by thinking too lowly of him, but we can blaspheme as well by trying to think too highly of him. Now, I want to clarify when I say that, that we can't really think too highly of God. It's not possible for us to do. It's rather that sometimes we think too lowly of him in our attempts to think highly of him. Because we think very often that God is just like us. That we ask ourselves, well, what would I do if I were in the place of God? And we think that our answer is the answer that God would give. That's what Ahaz did. God says to him, I'll give you a sign. 65 years is a long time for you, I know. I'll give you a sign. Ask me for anything. Oh, no, I, I will not ask. I'll not put the Lord to the test. It was characteristic of the Pharisees. They had the reputation of being pure and holy the defenders of God's word. They denounced sin and upheld righteousness. But look closer. They denounced sin that was for them distasteful or inconvenient or in some way made their lives difficult or unpleasant. And so in Luke, Chapter 7, when a woman with a sordid lifestyle comes to see Jesus 
at the open house of a Pharisee by the name of Simon. And Simon sees the interaction between this woman and Jesus. Simon thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know what sort of woman this is, that she's a sinner. And, 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 and you see all kind of assumptions there. If this man were a prophet, clearly he's not. Because he doesn't even know what kind of woman this is. And, and if he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't let her touch him. He wouldn't go near her. Why was that? Well, it's because her sin was distasteful to Simon. And his attitude toward her was one of condemnation. But the Pharisees, it seemed, had no problem with sin that led to advantage for them. So they had devised a clever way of keeping more of their money for themselves rather than using it for the care of their aging parents under the rubric of it being Korban. This has been theoretically dedicated to God. And Jesus upbraids them for devouring widows' houses and somehow they were able to do that and make themselves look pure as the wind-driven snow and lily-white and righteous and upright. It was four years ago, before COVID, that God brought me to a place of deep repentance and I can't unsee what I've seen. We are so often no better than the Pharisees. You know, most Christians I know are troubled by the rapid rise of the LGBTQ agenda. I am. Are you? But I want you to ask yourself, why? Why? Is it because your heart is moved to compassion for individuals who are being led to a place of deeper and deeper alienation from God? Or is it because you find the whole thing disturbing and distasteful and you find it personally disadvantageous or threatening to you? You look at such people as Jesus did with a heart swelled with compassion for those who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? Or are they adversaries? Political opponents to be politically overcome. Or maybe you long for the good old days. You remember those good old days when godliness prevailed? You know, it's not new for us to say things like that. Writer of Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. There were no good old days. There were always societal sins. Although in the past... They may have been ones that didn't bother Christian people or bother the church too much. Maybe they even brought advantage. So we smiled and ignored them. 
We may certainly blaspheme against God by thinking too lowly of him. But we blaspheme no less certainly oftentimes in the high thoughts we have from him, what we have of him. Because in both cases, what we end up doing is thinking he is like us. And you will never understand the greatness of God until you understand the wretched depths to which the world has fallen. Not to the wretched depths of today, but oh, they were so much better yesterday. Not to their wretched depths, but not my wretched depths. But until you understand the wretched depths to which you and I and the whole world have fallen, And then the greatness of God can be seen in the depths to which he stooped to become like us. Ahaz thought too highly of God to ask him for a sign even when God stooped to tell him to do so. So God rebuked Ahaz for his holiness. I suppose he thought he was more righteous than God. And then he stoops to give him a sign. It's a sign that will come about in Ahaz's own day. Let me read the whole of the chapter for you, the whole of the passage for you. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, asked the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights, But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Ahaz said, Here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. And the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any. Since Ephraim broke away from Judah, he will bring the king of Assyria. It's a sign that came to pass in Ahaz's own day. But the words would carry a significance beyond Ahaz's day. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God 
with us. God stooped. The maker of the universe was born of a woman, was born under the law, was born in a lowly condition to a poor family in an animal stall. He suffered all of the miseries of this life, suffered all of the things that we do, yet he without sin, he was betrayed, abandoned, beaten, spat upon, mocked, and crucified. In all our pain and misery and curse, he came to be with us. To the chagrin, often, of the Pharisees. He came to be with us. With the drug addict who can't find the strength to overcome his self-destructive habit. With the single mother wondering how she's going to make it. With non-binary people who now that they've come to a place where they've been told that they're free, can't understand why the pain won't go away. With the prostitute who can't see her way out. It's not the healthy who need a physician. It's the sick. And the truth is that we're all sick. The Pharisees didn't recognize it. But if they had, yes, he came to be God with us, with even respectable people who embrace and have made peace with and excuses for their socially and ecclesiastically acceptable sins that benefit them and still allow them to look holier than others. You'll never understand the greatness of God until you see the distance that he came and the depths to which he stooped for us and for our salvation. The true greatness of God is seen in the depths to which he stooped. He came to be Emmanuel, God with us, and he still is. Even as he was preparing to return To his father after the resurrection, he said in Matthew 28, Look, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. He's God with us. The question is, are you with him? You can be. So we're going to pray in a moment here. And I want to encourage you when we do to call out to him. Tell him you want to repent of your sin, but you don't have the strength. Tell him you need help. Tell him that you need to be rescued. There's not one passage in the Gospels to which you can turn in which someone came to Jesus and said, help me, and he turned them away. And he won't turn you away either.
He's Emmanuel. God with us. And he'll be God with you if you call upon him. Ask him to show you the depths of your sin that you cling to, that you make excuses for, that you present even as holiness and to deliver you. But that's why he came. To save his people from their sins. He's God with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, for us and for our salvation, to save us from our sins, you came down. You're God with us. Help us, O Lord, to see our need, to see our weakness, and for us to be with you. Amen.